So this morning, Jarvis Whip is going to be preaching to us, and I'll just, just say a little bit about Jarvis. I've known Jarvis, we figured out it's probably since about 2004, I became acquainted with him and his wife, Crystal. Um, um, we attended church together for, for several years, and uh, he was involved in college ministry at that time through at, on the campus of Northern State University, and, um, and he uh, attended seminary out at Master's Seminary in uh, Los Angeles. Um, he has been back. He's taught at Aberdeen Christian High School, I think, for a while. He's, he's been in private business, and now he is working for the Capital Commission, which is a ministry that serves in primarily in peer, but also around the state. And um, it's a, a, a missionary work, really, to our governmental leaders, where he, and he can probably describe this better than I can, but we as a church support Jarvis through his work in the Capital Commission. So um, we were looking forward to hearing what you have to say, Jarvis. God bless you. Good morning. As Dave was saying, we are not uh, we are familiar with Aberdeen and uh, the kids on our way up here. Can you show us where we used to live? Well, which place? So. <laughs> um, so it is good, but good to be here. It's good to see a lot of uh, familiar faces this morning. As Dave was saying, uh, I am with Capital Commission. And uh, so I want to take just a few minutes to uh, explain a little bit about that. Some of you may have picked up some literature in the back uh, before to kind of see what that's about. And I do want to thank you uh, for really being the first church to officially uh, support us as missionaries to the capital. And uh, there is more information in the back. There's newsletters. Uh, there's a pamphlet that just goes more in depth, as well as uh, some examples of Bible story, Bible studies that I've done in the capital. So there's lots of things back there for you to look at. Capital Commission is a missions organization. Uh, we have guys in 23 state capitals around the nation. Uh, we are not a lobby group. So we do not lobby specific pieces of, le of legislation. Doing so would, would obviously put us at odds with whoever is on the opposite side of that piece of legislation. And that just kind of puts us in a position that we don't want to be because we're, we are there to serve all of the legislators, all of the leaders in the Capitol, uh, no matter which side of the political aisle they are on. We exist to reach the capital community for Christ. We seek to deal with the ultimate issue, the human heart. Because man is lost and in need of a Savior, um, we strive to reach out with the gospel to change those, those hearts. Making disciples of nations, Matthew 28, requires the discipleship of the nation's leadership. And that is our task. We do, do this by providing pastoral care in the capital. Uh, during session, I was there every day, all day, uh, serving as a, as a chaplain in function. We share God's love, teach expositional Bible studies, and have a presence uh, in the capital to build relationships. We pray for and with leaders, provide go godly counsel when asked to do so. We seek to evangelize those who have not experienced a personal relationship with Christ and establish those who desire to grow in their walk with Christ. I find it interesting that in the Old Testament we often find next to a king we find a prophet. 
someone to speak the words of God to those in authority. In the New Testament, the early church had a strategy to reach their world, and that was to plant churches in capital cities. If you look at the places that Paul went, city after city is not just an important city, it is a capital city. And that is our strategy as well, is to place people in capital cities to work with leaders. We also engage churches, uh, business leaders, individuals that can help us in ministry and with financial support. Last fall is when I started with Capital Commission, so we've been in ministry less than a year, about 10 months now. And a lot has happened in that time. By traveling around the state, I've been able to start relationships with a large number of legislators from both sides of the political aisle in a wide range of backgrounds. I have even been able to meet with numerous legislators in their homes to get to know their families, their wives. As I said before, I was able to be in session every day during, during session. I was able, as missionaries do, to immerse myself in the, in the atmosphere, the culture of the Capitol. So whether that was attending committee meetings, uh, making rounds on the floor to, to uh, talk with legislators, having lunch with legislators, going to the political events and the social events in the evening, all of those things that I, I took part in in order to build relationships and to really be able to be a part of that community. A weekly Bible study was launched on Tuesday evenings. Uh, we met at the, at the Perkins restaurant in Fort Pier every Tuesday evening. The first, evening, the first week we had about 13 legislators and we held pretty close to that, 10 to 12 legislators every week all through session as we went through the Gospel of John. We teach ex- expositional Bible studies, so we worked verse by verse, uh, beginning John 1-1 and getting to about John chapter 2 <laughs> during session. <clears throat> this keeps us grounded in Scripture and keeps us away from hot-button political issues. The reason that we want this is so that we are seen as, as the people, the, the ministers who, who are known for teaching the Word of God, and that we're not pigeonholed into being uh, this person that is lobbying for a particular issue. Attending political functions outside of session during the interim has been beneficial to me as well, more so than I ever dreamed it would be. It opened doors to meet with people, start relationships with people that I would not otherwise have access to. So attorney general candidates, U.S. House candidates, governor candidates, those types of people that are hard to get access to uh, when you see them at multiple political events and they're wondering why you're there and what you're doing, uh, it just it helps out. So and it has led to a number of great conversations. I've also been meeting uh, quite frequently with a number of constitutional officers in the Capitol. I can't say that it's weekly or anything at this point, but that is my goal, is to turn that into a weekly Bible study in the Capitol year-round. So a lot of good things have taken place in this first year, uh, with many more things that we would like to be able to do, such as that year-round Bible study in the Capitol. This requires more funding 
at this point, I'm kind of bivocational. Um, I've been helping some friends with farming to try and meet our needs on the side. In the first about 10 months now, uh, we have raised about 60% of what we would need for a year's ministry. So although that is good progress for a year, first year starting a new ministry in the state, it leaves us in a, with a need of about $40,000 to finish that first year and begin and be in good position to start the next year of ministry. Along with that, we are desiring to increase the number of monthly givers to bring more stability to our, to our finances. God has called us to disciple the nations, and that means we must disciple our leaders. And I hope that you will help with that by praying for your leaders in the Ministry of Capital Commission, as well as supporting us financially. The passage that I want to go to this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And if you've seen any of our literature, that passage, verses 1 through 4, is usually on our literature. That is one of those foundational passages for our ministry. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6 reads, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. <clears throat> For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. This passage, as I said, ties well with the ministry of Capital Commission and its mission to reach the capital communities for Christ. In this passage, Paul is writing to Timothy. He is writing to encourage Timothy. He has sent Timothy to pastor the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus, if you've read the book of Ephesus, you know that that church had many issues. Paul has left Timothy there to pastor that church and to continue the work that he started there. 1 Timothy is written around 62 to 64 A.D. Paul has finished, um, Paul has been released from his first imprisonment in Rome, and Nero is the emperor. Nero is so debauched that it is hard to actually describe him in terms appropriate to an assembly like this. He killed his own mother, to eliminate any threat she might be to the throne. He spent in lavish access. He seldom traveled with less than a thousand carriages. Makes our presidential motorcade look small. He never wore the same clothes twice. He would gamble huge sums of money. He would lavish unbelievable wealth on guests. And of course, the people of Rome were the ones that paid for that. If he ran out of money, he would simply just confiscate what he wanted. He married boys more than once. It is commonly thought that he burned Rome to make room for more building projects and then blamed it on the Christians. But Timothy has been sent to Ephesus to pastor the church there. And Paul is coaching Timothy 
on how to pastor that church. And so we get here to our passage. There are a number of ways to break this passage down, but I want to just give you three main points this morning. The exhortation for evangelistic prayer. Exhortation for evangelistic prayer. And then the reason to pray, or the results of evangelistic prayer. And then the purpose to pray. First, verse 1, the exhortation for evangelistic prayer. First of all, then, I urge. First of all, I urge. First of all, in importance. This is not first of all in a list. This is first of all in importance. Of all the things that he goes on to tell Timothy in this book, this is what he seems, he deems most important. He goes on to talk about the role of men and women in the church qualifications for elders and deacons, a falling away at the end times, treatment of church members, and many more issues. These are big and important issues to the church. So when he says, first of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, this is important to us. That causes us to stop and evaluate how much importance do we put on this. So he urges that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. We are to pray for all men. Now, obviously, that is not all, as in every single member of this globe. You can never pray for six billion plus people. But it is all, as in all kinds. There is no type of person left out. It includes all nationalities and ethnicities. It includes the rich and the poor. It includes male and female, those we agree with and those we disagree with, Republicans, Independents, and Democrats. We are to pray for all men. We are to pray for the salvation of our family members, friends, neighbors, colleagues, bosses, employees. The list is all-inclusive. But the passage goes on to single out one category. Rulers, kings, and all who are in authority. We would say in our day, all who hold office. Maybe the hardest group to pray for in some circumstances. Think of other countries besides our own. Of Russia or North Korea, Pakistan, many others. And the leaders that they have. They resemble more the the emperors of Paul's day in desperate need of a savior to free them from the bondage to sin. We know that it is important to pray, but do our lives reflect, reflect that importance? Do we pray with this urgency that Paul is encouraging us? <clears throat> first of all, speaks of the priority of first of importance. Urge as passion to that importance. Paul is not, it's not a command. Paul is not commanding Timothy. He is urging. He urges the, per, the church to pray. He is coming alongside to encourage, to implore. Think of a coach urging their team, getting them fired up for the end of the game. This is Paul urging us. And it's first of all, then. And we must go back and, and see what he is talking about. This is a therefore, if you will. Because of what I have already said, do this. So we have to go back to chapter 1. I want you to look 
at a statement in, in chapter 1, verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is why Paul is urging us to pray for the lost. Because Jesus came into the world to save sinners. By the way, Paul is speaking here not He's speaking here not just to us individually. He is actually speaking to Timothy as a pastor. He is speaking of what should take place in the assembly of the church. Exactly what David did this morning. To pray for the lost. Included in this importance for prayer, he lists four different ways. This is the diversity of this evangelistic prayer. He lists entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings. Entreaties, at its heart, it speaks to a lack. Something is lacking. To entreat is to pray for a need. Something that is lacking. A person, as we can entreat a superior for something. It's a passionate request to supply what is lacking. Thinking, think of a child pleading to their parent for something that they want. We are to entreat God for the salvation of those we know who are lost. Prayers. In Scripture, this word is used only in reference to God. You can entreat others. You pray only to God. It carries a unique element of worship and reference. We offer prayer with reverence to God. This is an act of worship. We give glory to the God who saves. And then petitions. At its heart, petitions means to be involved with someone, to act on behalf of another. It carries a sense of empathy, sympathy, compassion, and involvement. When we petition, we do so from a position of understanding. We know what is needed because we share or have shared that need. We pray for God to save the lost, understanding their lostness and need for a Savior because we once were lost and in need of a Savior. And then thanksgiving. Thankfulness to a God who saves. Our prayers should be done with an attitude of gratitude to give thanks in all things, especially to a God who saves. And then secondly, we see the reason for evangelistic prayer. So that, so that, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. There are two important reasons here. And one is that prayer reminds us of who is in charge. This is implicit, not explicit in the text. As we come before God's throne, we are reminded that He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. There is one God one Creator, one Savior. As we pray, we usually begin, Dear God, or Our Father, or Dear Jesus. And we end in Jesus' name. Jesus' name includes all of who He is, His character, what he, who He is, what He has done. When we pray, we pray to the Creator of the universe. Back in chapter 1 again, verse 17, Paul says, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, 
be honor and glory forever and ever. Job put it this way, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Kings, dictators, commanders and chiefs may think that they are in charge, but they are only in authority under the true king of kings. God determines the nations. In fact, Proverbs 21 says, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. An example of this is Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. This is after he has had a dream that Daniel interprets for him. He's on the roof of his palace in Babylon, and he looks over his kingdom and says, look what I have done. Then God struck him, made him like an animal. God said, To you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. After seven years, Nebuchadnezzar came to his senses. In fact, he writes these words in Daniel chapter 4. But at the end of that period, I... Nebuchadnezzar raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? Skipping down to verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Make no mistake, God is on his throne and he is in control. Second, prayer changes us. This is the second result of this prayer. It changes us. Look at the second part of verse 2. So that. Pray for our rulers so that. And we insert so that they do what we want them to. That's why the capital is full of lobbyists, right? Trying to get politicians to pass laws or not to pass laws so that the outcome is favorable to their cause. But no, so that we. It doesn't even mention leaders. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. As we pray, we are reminded what we should act like. Knowing that God is in charge brings peace and tranquility to our lives. Tranquility refers to the outside disturbances, things going on in the world around us, at work, in the news. When we pray, we recognize that God is in control, and this brings tranquility to our hearts. The quiet life refers to internal disturbances, our own issues. When we pray, we bring our own issues into line with who God is and what He desires. As Christians, we are not to be agitators. We are to pursue godliness and dignity, the end of verse 2. Godliness refers to a life that glorifies God. Our lives should bring Him glory, not shame. 
what we do and say should, re- should reflect well on the God we serve. And dignity refers to moral behavior, holy behavior. Our attitude and actions should reflect Christ to the world. When the world looks at us, do they see a difference? Do we have a good reputation in our community or on Facebook? Recognizing Jesus as Lord reminds us that we should live a a life of godliness and dignity. As Christians, we should not be known for our political vitriol. Back to verse 2. A tranquil and quiet life does not refer to the American dream. It is very tempting to want rulers to rule in such a way that we can experience the good life, the American dream. But that is not the point Paul is making. It is rather a life that is devoid of any offense toward the government so that we can fulfill our mission. Our mission is to make disciples of the nations. Our public public praying for the government shows that we are not antagonistic toward the government. The reason we are to desire good rule is so that we are free to proclaim the gospel. In Titus 3, we read, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. To malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. The world should see us, the church, as peacemakers above the fray, seeking the welfare of the government. We are to pray for them, for their good. Yes, we hate the world system, the corruption and deceit, the philosophies of this world that bring ruin and destruction. But the individuals are not the enemy. They are our mission field. They are captives of the real enemy. Second Timothy 2 says, If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Do we expect the unrighteous to act righteously? Will a bad tree bear good fruit? If we want good rule, we need to seek the salvation of those who rule. At this point, some more background is helpful. As Paul writes to Timothy, he has experienced a lot of persecution. The church has always experienced persecution. The Jerusalem church had experienced a lot even under the hand of Paul himself. And in almost every city Paul planted a church, there was persecution. When Paul says to pray for kings and rulers and all in authority, again, his emperor was Nero. He was praying for the most debased and evil of rulers. And it was Nero who would be responsible for Peter and Paul's death. And then lastly, in the passage already read this morning, we're in Romans, every person is to, be sub- is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Praying for our leaders to remind us how we are to act and the testimony we should have before the world. <clears throat> and the next, and that is the reason for evangelistic prayer. And then the third, the purpose for evangelistic prayer. The purpose, verse 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 
who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. Prayer reminds us of God's heart and our commission. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. It is good, it is right that we pray for the salvation of the lost because it is consistent with the will of God, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Scripture says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but wills that all men come to salvation. In Psalm 145, we read, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all his works. And of course, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God is a saving God. It is part of his character. The problem is that the world is enslaved to sin. It loves its sin. No one seeks God. The problem with man is that his heart is desperately wicked. The unsaved are enslaved to sin, just like we once were. And God desires the salvation of the lost so much that he sent his son to die. He did not send Jesus to die so that we can live in comfort in the greatest nation on earth. He died for sinners to pay the penalty for sin. Does our passion for the lost reflect God's passion for the lost? As important as laws may be, they come from the hearts of men. The real issue is the heart of man. And then verses 5 through 7, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Paul was appointed a minister so that he could be a witness to the truth about Christ, so that people would be saved. Our desire should be the same as God, that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This passage speaks to praying for the lost for all men, without distinction. But it does single, single out rulers. And that should be our heart and our prayer. When we think of our leaders, we should be praying for them, and specifically for their salvation. As Matthew 28 says, Go and therefore and make disciples of the nations. That requires discipleship of leaders. As a closing example, I want to imagine that your son has become president. You would be very proud. You would be probably very concerned as well. You would have many things that you would want to pray for. But then imagine if your son was unsaved, even though president. How would you pray for him then? How would this change how you prayed for him? Undoubtedly, even with all the other things that you would pray for, his eternal destiny would be most important. And that should drive us as well. As we pray for our leaders, what is most important? Is it how, how they rule? Is it legislation? Or is it that they know Jesus Christ? In this text, God calls us to evangelistic prayer. He signals out rulers. He includes a diversity of prayer, how we can pray for them. He gives us reasons for prayer and the purpose of prayer. 
that it is God's heart that mankind be saved. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we have gathered this morning to worship you, I thank you for the wonderful words of the songs that we were able to sing this morning, the truth of those words, the heart of those words, that we serve a great and mighty God who is full of mercy, that though we are sinners, there is more mercy. As we think of praying for the lost, Father, we ask that you would convict us, encourage us, strengthen us to the task that we have before us. Encourage us as we pray for those around us who do not know you, that we would have that strong desire that they know you. And as we think of our leaders, that we would not just think of them as passing legislation, that affects us negatively or positively, but we see them as the mission field, as those who need to know Christ and to walk with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.